What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. It's a rainy night here in California as I record the perfect atmosphere for tonight's episode. I have two stories that I am very excited about from two very talented female authors. I went a little nuts with sound effects this week. I couldn't help myself. Both of these stories lent themselves to some fun sounds. The first one being of a more disgusting nature. But we end off this week's episode with some more soothing sounds in our second story. I already posted a sappy message about this on some of my social media, but I wanted to thank those of you who have purchased merchandise from my Teespring store so far. I'm not kidding when I say I cried when my first two orders came in. The fact that you beautiful people want to be out in the world representing my show makes me so happy. I really can't thank you enough. I'm working on a new guided nightmare that should be out soon for Patreon subscribers. Keep an eye on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so you'll know when it's up. Now, this week's first story comes to us from Angelique Bone. It's a Twilight Zone-esque story that is sure to make you squirm. This is Behind Closed Doors. She was up for promotion and had just finished running the corporate gauntlet of interview, presentation, interview, and had to go to the bathroom. It never failed. Anytime her nerves got ramped up, her bladder became obnoxiously full, and that morning had been extremely stressful. She went into the blissfully empty bathroom. She had always hated being next to someone in a public restroom. As the French would say, Elle n'aime pas bicelle à cause de quelqu'un. But for now, that wasn't a concern. Every stall door was closed, and she chose the one closest to the door. Out of habit, she knocked lightly and began to push the door open. A small, sinister thought whipped through her mind. What if there was something in there? puzzled at the fact that she thought something rather than someone. She shook her head, chuckled, and opened the door. The stall was covered in gore. Blood streaked and ran down the walls, pooling on the floor, dripping from the handrail and the 
treasure chest. A high heel lay in a puddle of blood in front of the toilet. And perched there on the seat was a creature that looked a lot like Gollum, aside from the claws and fangs. It was chewing on a woman's foot with apparent relish. She couldn't scream. All she could muster was a small, helpless, Oh! Its head snapped up and its black eyes narrowed. It dropped the foot, letting it thump to the floor. The thing hissed and tensed as if to pounce. She stumbled back, the heel of her shoe catching in the space between the tiles, and she went down, hard. She raised up onto her elbows to try and scramble back onto her feet. But when she looked up, it was gone. She lay there, staring into the pristine stall, terrified and confused, when Shannon walked in. She stopped when she saw Michelle on the floor and stared for a moment. Are you all right? She looked from her to the stall and back. Everything was normal. There was no blood, no horrible foot, and no creature. The only things out of the ordinary were the stall door hanging open and her lying on the gritty floor. Michelle thought fast, put on a big grin, wiggled her foot in the air and said, Yeah, I'm fine. Damn these high heels. She cocked an eyebrow and Michelle got to her feet and brushed herself off. Really, I'm fine. You sure? Another dazzling smile. Absolutely. She gave her a once-over and nodded. She went into the stall, which was still clean, no sign of the blood or that horrible thing, leaving Michelle standing at the sinks. Michelle stood there and stared at the stall door for a moment, then realized she was about to wet her pants. She stepped inside the next stall, putting aside her usual distaste for using an adjoining one. She locked the door and pulled her pants down. She sat on the commode, listening to the sounds of the bathroom, shoes scraping on the floor, clothes rustling, the toilet paper roll spinning and sighed. Despite an almost desperate urge, she couldn't relieve herself with someone so close. Thankfully, Shannon's shadow shifted and she stood up. The toilet flushed. Then Shannon screamed as something slammed her into the thin metal wall. She watched the shadows play along the floor as Shannon's feet scrambled and tried to find purchase, but something was lifting her so that only her toes scraped along, drumming a tattoo as drops of blood started to splash onto the tiles. Horrible snarls and grunts joined Shannon's screams, which were beginning to sound choked, as if they were coming from underwater. Whatever it was lifted Shannon so that her feet disappeared from the limited view afforded by the stall, and there was a hideous crunch, and a gout of blood shot up, splashing the ceiling, dripping onto Michelle's upturned face. 
It dropped Shannon and her body hit the floor. Michelle picked up her feet and braced them against the wall as Shannon's lifeless body began to twitch and jerk. Blood flowing along the tiles as sounds of ripping cloth and wet smacking got stronger. Michelle's bladder let go and the sounds and motion stopped instantly. Time stood still as it will in moments of extreme terror. It knows I'm here, and it knows I'm vulnerable, she thought. Her breath shallow and panicked. She realized she was literally caught with her pants down. She thanked God for what little yoga she practiced that allowed her to get her legs up and keep them braced, and tried to come up with a plan. Unfortunately, There isn't much to work with in a public bathroom stall. Three walls, the toilet paper dispenser, a little metal treasure chest, and a handrail if you're lucky. Michelle was lucky today. It was even on the opposite wall from the carnage. She sat there, motionless, watching the blood follow the tiny lines in the floor. Her mind whirled. She was almost frozen with confusion and terror. Then, a cramp struck her in the calf. She inhaled sharply, and a clawed hand reached under the stall, grasping and searching for her. She screamed, losing her footing for a moment. Her left shoe fell off, and the hand clenched around it instantly, pulling it back under the stall. Shannon's body resumed its posthumous herky-jerk, and Michelle thought she was going mad. She reseated her footing on the walls as best she could. Having one stocking foot wasn't going to help at all. It kept sliding. She shifted so both legs rested on the handrail and took off her other shoe. She threw it over the stall and heard it clatter against the mirror. The thing hissed, and she heard the stall door burst open as it left to investigate. She took the short opportunity to quickly put her feet down and climb into the toilet. She realized her pants were still down, and she quickly pulled up her panties and kicked off the pants. They whispered to the floor, and she crouched down on the seat. She could hear the thing looking for the source of the sound. Then it slammed back into the stall to get back to smacking on her former co-worker. The smacking, wet, chewing sounds were too much for her. She stood, but wasn't tall enough to look over the stall. She looked at the handrail and put a tentative foot on it. It wasn't wide, but she thought it could hold her weight. She would have to get up onto it and brace against the opposite wall. She thought she could do it. Inch across and get to the door, then jump down and make a run for it. She decided to try. She stepped under the handrail, and as she started to fall, turned quickly and slapped both hands flat onto the stall. The creature slammed against the wall, but she was firmly wedged and only shook. It only did it once, thankfully. If it had kept up, she would have lost her balance for sure and fallen. She slid towards the door, 
moving painfully slow, cautious, trying not to think about how sweaty her palms were getting, how tired her ankles were getting, when she heard the outside door open and footsteps enter the bathroom. She clung there as the footsteps clicked over to the sink, and she slid herself up, hand over hand, to cling to the top of the stall. She raised her shoulders up to try to see the unsuspecting woman, who was undoubtedly checking her makeup before choosing a stall, and barely managed. She caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror as well, hair destroyed, sweat streaming down her face, mixing with her makeup, eyes wide, knuckles white on the edge of the stall. She opened her mouth to tell the woman to run, and saw the woman's eyes stutter upwards and lock on hers. She turned slowly around, staring up at the horror of a woman clinging to the stall, and got only, what the, past her lips before the creature was upon her. It ripped and tore through the woman's throat, sending geysers of blood all over the room. Michelle screamed as it splashed her face and one sad thought. Her name. I didn't know her name. Whipped through her mind before she realized she might have a chance to make it. While the creature and the woman continued their crazy blood-soaked polka in front of the sink, Michelle took her feet from the handrail and hung on the side of the stall. She dropped to the floor and used her shoulder to ram the door open, breaking the lock. She slid through the blood pooling on the floor and hit the wall and glanced back. The creature hissed as the woman slid to the floor, bracing itself to pounce on Michelle. But she let loose a blood-curdling shriek and ran for the door to the hallway. She reached it as the creature slammed into the wall only five feet behind her. And she ripped open the door and leaped through. She slammed it closed behind her, thinking whatever powers looked over blood-soaked half-naked women that it wasn't on a pneumatic hinge. She staggered backwards and almost fell when she hit the water fountain. She looked wildly around, thinking that the thing may have doubled back on her, coming out through the men's room, but no. There was nothing there. She heard the comforting sounds of the call center at work. Hums of copiers and fax machines, low murmurs of operators assisting customers with their various issues, the thud of sodas landing in the vending machines, She took a shaky breath and ran a hand through her hair. It didn't accomplish much. There was a strange comfort in the normality of the gesture. She shook violently for a moment, then took inventory of herself. Fingers and toes? Check. No apparent injury? Check. No pants? No shoes? Problem. She couldn't go back in there to get them, that's for sure. Now she had to navigate across the floor to get to her desk, get her purse, and get out without being stopped and questioned. She didn't want that. 
She didn't want to have to explain to her boss and paramedics and whoever else that there was some awful thing in the bathroom that killed Shannon and had her trapped hanging in the stall and she only got away by running while it chomped on some other lady. She'd be run to the nut house if not jail. She couldn't crawl. That would be noticed in an instant. She decided to just go for it. She squared her shoulders and walked as if she owned the world back to her desk. Luckily, it was busy, so people were paying more attention to their computer screens than to what was going on around them. And she actually made it without being stopped. She sat down quickly and hunched over so nobody would see her standing there in her underwear, and they wouldn't see her blood-streaked face over her monitor. She didn't bother logging off of the system. She just hit the power button on the computer. She grabbed her bag and fished out her keys, then slid from her cubicle. She kept close to the wall and made it to the lobby door. She walked quickly, almost running, tossing a quick, see you later, over her shoulder at the receptionist, who got a good look at her and gasped. Michelle sprinted to her car and got inside. She tore out of the parking lot, slowing down only because the lunch hour traffic demanded it. She sat in traffic, watching as police cars and ambulances passed her, turning into the office complex. Her lane finally began moving and she raced home. She pulled into the driveway and sat in her car. She began shaking and crying, the adrenaline finally wearing off of her. She could smell herself. Blood, sweat, the metallic stink of panic. And she wanted nothing more but to stand in the shower and pretend that nothing happened. She got out of the car and went inside the house. The cat rubbed against her legs and she locked the door behind her. She stripped off her remaining clothes and tossed them into the garbage. She got a fresh towel out of the linen closet and went into the bathroom. She looked into the mirror, horrified at her appearance. It was a wonder that she didn't get pulled over and checked for an injury. But it would have been awkward explaining that the blood wasn't hers. She sat the towel on the rack and pulled back the shower curtain. The creature made no sound as it jumped at her. She screamed for an instant. The sound cut off as the thing's horrible teeth dug into her throat. She felt its horrible warmth as it clung to her, slurping and chewing as she slipped away, falling backwards, her last ridiculous thought spiraling through her head. I didn't want to die naked. to visit death-themed subreddits like watch people die in morbid curiosity very regularly. I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to that kind of stuff. Horror movies, real-life stories, it all fascinates me. 
I wish I had looked away, because there are some things you can't unsee. I remember one video in particular. A man is cut in half by a train, his legs severed and viscera scattered, while he miraculously and horribly remains alive for a few minutes, waiting for death. That one really got to me. Not just the carnage inflicted on the poor man, but the fact that a huge group of bystanders did nothing but film him. No one offered comfort. No one held his hand. Maybe that's why, when I was faced with a similar situation, I acted how I did. I was walking back to my office building near the end of my lunch break after getting a sandwich at a local deli. The weather was a perfect spring day. Blue sky with a light breeze and the scent of the ocean on the air. The tranquility was shattered by the screech of tires. The sound of metal on metal and the most horrendous screams I have ever heard. I quickly saw the source. A bicyclist had been hit by a truck and was lying half-crushed on the side of the street. Everyone around was in similar shock, and it was like we all took a collective moment for our brains to catch up to what we were seeing. Suddenly, with the speed of an elastic band snapping back, time moved normally again and people began calling for 911, directing traffic, clearing the scene, but no one approached the man. In that instant, I remembered the video. I knew what I had to do, and before I could think, I rushed to the victim's side. To say it was the worst thing I've ever seen is a gross understatement. The man's intestines were spilling out of a gash that nearly severed him in two. One of his legs was a pulp of red, and the smell, oh god, the smell was unfathomable. As I approached, I saw that my fear was confirmed. He was conscious. Imagine knowing you're mortally injured, aware that you're living the last moments of your life. It's not a fate I would wish on anyone. So I did what I could. I knelt by his side, careful not to look at his injuries more than necessary. His eyes were huge, with pupils blown out and the whites rolling like a wild horse's. As he saw me, he stilled a little and reached for me with his working arm. Shh, I murmured as I clasped his hand. I'm here. I've got you. I didn't know what else to say in that moment. He stared at me and his labored breathing slowed a little. 
Am I going to die? He rasped, blood frothing in the corner of his lip. I couldn't lie. I couldn't give him false hope. We both knew the truth. Yes, but you have nothing to be scared of. You're going where we all end up eventually. I know this isn't what you want, but you're going on a new adventure. I tried to make my words even and calm, stroking the back of his hand. After that, we were silent, him broken and prone on the pavement, me his sentinel, cradling his hand in mine. The whole while I prayed for his end to come quickly. Mercifully, he passed soon after, before the sirens of the approaching ambulance could even be heard. The paramedics found me still sitting with them, and when they took over, I quickly stumbled away and threw up the sandwich I'd eaten earlier. It was the hardest thing I had ever done, witnessing his last breath, but I knew it had been the right thing. I called into work shortly after and let my boss know what had happened. He was suitably appalled and told me to take as much time as I needed. To be honest, I don't remember my commute home or how I got to my car in the first place. I stumbled into my apartment and got right into a hot shower, clothes and all, thinking only of washing the man's blood off. When I emerged later, scrubbed pink and feeling more exhausted than I ever had. I had only thoughts of sleeping for a long while. I moved slowly, like cold syrup, and entered my bedroom, flicking on the light. There, on my bed, was a beautifully wrapped gift box. In hindsight, I should have been more worried, knowing that no one had access to my apartment. But in that moment, my brain was functioning at a little more than static frequency. Puzzled, I carefully removed the shiny ebony paper. A cold chill seemed to seep from the box. And I opened it to reveal a mass of onyx fabric extricating it fully from the box I held it up revealing a long hooded cloak the color of darkest midnight it was then when I saw the card in delicate calligraphy it said only five words for a job well done despite how it may appear this is not a story about death. This is a story about free will. The weeks following the accident passed in a blur. I couldn't sleep and ended up with a prescription for some chemical aid, which succeeded in numbing my mind and blunting the edge of reality. For days, I didn't bathe and existed in a fog 
interrupted by tasteless meals and even more tasteless daytime TV. The cloak was put into the closet, crammed into the back by the leftover Christmas wrapping paper and spare linens, where it sat forgotten. After a month in a purgatory of grief and shock, I finally emerged and rejoined the living. Work resumed. I cautiously started going out with friends, and life moved on for a time. Although my mind never strayed too far from what I'd witnessed that day on the street, I was processing it, and slowly but surely I was coming to peace. It was about 12 weeks later that all of my progress came grinding to a violent halt. Again, it was a beautiful sunny day, birds chirping and not a single cloud in the sky. As I sipped my coffee on my patio, I saw that the apartment groundskeeper was about to do some mowing. I sat and watched him work, idly thinking about my own tasks for the day ahead. I reached for my coffee, savoring the morning when my left hand suddenly went numb. It felt like it had been dipped into ice water, pins and needles dancing across my flesh. I stood up suddenly, knocking into my patio table in my haste, looking for the source of the chill. At that moment, I saw the groundskeeper from the corner of my eye pushing the mower between one step and the next. Suddenly, he went stiff, a marionette with all his strings pulled taut. My hand forgotten, I turned just in time to see him collapse in the grass. The bird song stopped, along with everything else. In slow motion, I watched blades of grass float to the ground, and my discarded coffee cup seemed to be suspended in the air. Like a wave crashing, time caught up suddenly. The cacophony of noise from the nearby street punctuated by the smash of my mug on the patio floor. And the span of a heartbeat, I was outside and beside the collapsed man. A neighbor had also seen him fall, and I could hear him on the phone with emergency dispatch. But one look at the groundskeeper, and I knew it was too late. So once more, I found myself holding the hand of a man, struggling through the last moments of his life. He clutched at his chest frantically trying to draw a breath. While I supplicated, knees in grass clippings, praying for his peace, he gripped my hand tighter. Eyes metronome ticking between mine and the ring in his left hand. The truth of the situation seeming to settle in, he tried desperately to tell me something. It came out as a near whisper, impossible to decipher. Shh, I'll tell her you love her.
but she already knows. From the wedding band on his finger, I guessed at what he was trying to say. Tears pulled in his eyes, but he nodded. The pleading look replaced by something closer to acceptance. Focus on your love. She can feel it. I took a deep breath, my own tears choking my voice. My words seemed to be lulling him, though, and a faint smile had appeared on his lips. Just think of all the stories you'll have to tell her when you see each other again. His eyes closed slowly, like a setting sun, and his chest stilled while my hand, still clasped in his, gave another flare of icy cold. He was gone. Later, after the paramedics had been and went, and the crowd of neighbors had dispersed like carrion crows called home, I was again alone in my apartment. Although my hand had returned to a normal temperature, A hot shower was needed. Like after the first accident, I was numb. I guess death is cold. As the scalding water rained down on me, I couldn't stop my mind from going over the events of the two deaths I'd now borne witness to. The scenes looping, replaying in tandem, reflecting the fragility of life. I was not okay. I was deeply affected by what I had been involved in. But I also knew that, if given a do-over, I would make the same choices again. To be there for those last moments so they wouldn't be alone. When I finally stepped from the tub, the bathroom was thick with fog. The mirror obscured by film. I blindly reached for a towel, but my hand settled on an unfamiliar fabric hanging from the rack. The inky black cloak was no longer tucked away in the closet. After witnessing the second man's passing, I was understandably checked out. Laughter was a memory, happiness a whispered rumor. I was scared to go outside, lest I be in the wrong place at the wrong time again. Although I was honored to have been able to hopefully bring a modicum of comfort to the men I'd seen pass, my mental state was suffering. I'd began getting headaches, ice picks driven deep behind my eyes, the only cure being isolation in a dark, silent room. My friends, despite my protests, were determined not to let me waste away behind closed doors. They brought care packages, kept me updated on the lives of mutual acquaintances, and even drove me to doctor's appointments. While I took a sabbatical from work and tried to find relief from my headaches, I was hounded constantly by the thought of the black hooded cloak. I hadn't moved it from the towel rack in the bathroom. 
the thought of even touching it too much for me to take on in my admittedly fragile state. On Sunday, I awoke inexplicably determined to get some fresh air into my lungs. So I ventured out to the beach near my house. Overwhelmed by the prospect of crowds, I ensured I arrived early and claimed a spot in the shade under a beautiful willow tree. I nestled into my blanket, closed my eyes, and let the sounds of the gently lapping waves drift over me. It was the most peaceful I had felt since everything had happened. I don't know how long I lay there in the magical place between sleep and wakefulness, blessedly free from headaches. When I finally fully woke, the sun was high in the sky, and although my patch of shade had shrunk and I could feel the beginnings of a sunburn, my left hand tingled with a chill. I've never understood the saying, my blood ran cold until that moment. I knew without a doubt that I was about to witness another death. My mind raced as I considered running. My self-preservation panicked at the thought that this was no longer something I could chalk up to a coincidence. But it was too late. A woman's voice, tentative at first, began calling for her child. Harper? Harper, honey, come to mommy. The woman's calls quickly became more frantic, and soon others had taken up the call as well. I stood up from my blanket, eyes pulled to the horizon where a small shape was barely discernible amongst the waves. I could have alerted someone else, but I knew this was my task alone. Like the inevitability of death, I had begun to accept what was happening. I sprinted to the water and plunged in, thankful for my years spent swimming as I quickly covered the distance to the child. By now, others had seen where I was heading and were attempting to catch up and help. But I was the first to arrive by a large margin, as I knew I would be. When I reached the little girl, I saw she was small, no older than eight or nine, her long blonde hair streaming around her like a mermaid. Her blue eyes were open. And as I reached for her, she slipped under the water. I dove down, her gaze locking with mine, as I followed her towards the sandy bottom of the ocean. She had already gone still, no longer thrashing, her hands delicately floating in front of her in a graceful arc of a ballerina's pose. Now parallel and eye to eye, I took her small fingers in my numb left hand, and the air left her lungs in a final cloud of tiny, perfect bubbles. 
I swear I heard her sigh. For a few heartbeats, we swayed together under the surface. The quiet calm, a private refuge from the chaos I knew was occurring above. When I finally broke the surface, bringing her up with me, a crowd of other swimmers was there to help pull her to shore. Although it was too late, a few people attempted to resuscitate her on the beach. Seeing all I had needed to and knowing there was nothing more to do, I stumbled away to the tree, forgotten by the other rescuers and the hysterical mother, now weeping over her child's slight frame. I collapsed on the blanket, unable to move or form a cohesive thought. Slowly, with infinite tenderness, a warmth settled around me. Looking down at myself, I saw that the black cloak had been draped around my shoulders. I whirled around, desperate to see who had wrapped it around me, to finally identify the gift giver who had been my near constant cause of fear for the last few months. No one was there, and no footprints marred the sand behind me. With raised hair and on the verge of a panic attack, I all but fled back to my home, determined to check myself into a psychiatric facility or a church as soon as possible. At home, I hung the cloak up in the entryway, unaware as to why I hadn't left it behind. I was about to call a friend for help when I saw that I had a voicemail on my phone. It was the doctor's office, asking me to come in to discuss the results of my recent MRI. I knew then, without having to hear the diagnosis, that it was something bad. The next day, the events at the beach put aside while I attended a meeting at the hospital brought sobering news. The cause of my headaches, although something I had tried to shrug off as inconsequential, was in fact an inoperable tumor. The prognosis, stiffly delivered by an unflinching specialist, gave me an expiry date akin to that of a carton of milk. There was a lot of talk about keeping me comfortable and about decisions I would need to make, but there is one decision I must make before any of the others. When I arrived home, still in shock from the death sentence I was handed, a letter was waiting for me on my credenza. The beautiful calligraphy, written in the same hand as the original card accompanying the cloak, bedecked the envelope addressed to me by name. With shaking fingers, I began to read. Death has never been the end, and as yours is approaching, you must decide. Will you wear the cloak? The choice, as always, is yours. 
So here I sit, my laptop the only illumination in my room, the cloak now draped across my bed. I have decisions to make. It's strange, the things that come to mind when one contemplates their impending end. I thought I would have sat mournful over the places I had not traveled, the people I'll miss. But instead, one quote in particular keeps playing over in my mind, like a song on the radio that I can't escape. In the words of John Keats, For many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death. I wonder, as I prepare to meet him, if I will indeed love death, my mysterious benefactor and shadow. There is a nobility in the way I picture him, unmoving, Endless, quiet. I try to picture the after, and I find it's like trying to imagine a new unseen color. Despite my attempt to pry answers from the cloak's giver, none have appeared. I wrote a return message on the letter left for me, but in the morning, no new words have been penned. The uncertainty is the hardest part. If I accept the cloak, I have somewhat of an idea what my eternity will entail. Joining the ranks of reapers, ferrymen, guides. I wonder idly which of the myths are closest to the truth. I wonder at the enormity of it. The possibility haunts me. However that taking up this mantle will exclude me from the end which all others experience. What if at the end of the lighted tunnel, a paradise awaits from which I would be barred entry? What if my loved ones are forever waiting on the other side, an eternity spent wondering why I have not appeared? Somewhat cruelly, I have been given a reprieve from the headaches. But the time bomb in my head remains. At least my mobility returned. And I was able once again to leave my apartment in an attempt to enjoy the time I have left. These attempts were futile, however, as my role as witness to death had increased in frequency as I was no longer presented with only the passing of humans. As I walked around my neighborhood last night, a pitiful mew combined with the now familiar tingling in my left hand drew my attention. Under a towering cedar hedge lay a small black and white cat, mercifully free from blood. Now playing my part by rote, I approached and knelt by the animal, tentatively reaching out to stroke its satiny fur. Its ribs were easily felt, its body withered by old age. The cat calmed almost instantly, 
nuzzling into the chill of my fingers. And for the first time since all of this began, I wasn't scared. There is an undeniable honor in this gift, or curse. When the cat had stilled, and my hand once again began to warm, I placed its nearly weightless body in a small grave I had dug under the cedar. It was such a stark contrast to the commotion that accompanies human death. To be silent and alone. No sirens wail, no tears or cries or frantic shouts. It was beautiful. A bird with a broken back shattered upon my window, a dog struck by a careless driver and left behind like discarded trash, a moth, wings frail from a too short life spent chasing flames. All of them sought me, and I, in turn, was drawn to their ebbing light. I regret now, as I am entombed safely within my home, a husk unable to venture out, that they will not be able to find me here. I hope someone else will comfort them when needed. My lungs struggle now, while my heart trudges doggedly on with my Trojan horse chest. Hopes and secrets and all the things left unsaid guarded safely behind my ribs. I wish I had saved my voice for something important. A grand last statement. But it is as though all of my remaining strength has pooled within my cold left hand. I know that my friends and family trust in my love for them. I leave behind no large estate to be settled, nor children to leave bereft. Compared to many, my death is easy and uncomplicated. My thoughts shift, machine gun rapid between, I'm fine, I'm at peace with this, I'm ready, I'm... And... Please, I'm scared. I don't want to go. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I wish I had done more seen more, been more. Please don't let me go. I don't want to go. Don't let me, when I'm gone, don't let me be a half-remembered name said only out of obligation and false grief. I don't want to be alone. I can't. I can't. I can't. Deep breath pulled through lips pressed tight with stubborn resolve. Lending strength to dug-in heels, still fighting against my end. I regret not leaving my phone within reach, not seeking hospice care, not asking someone, anyone, to sit with me and talk me through this, talk me out, gently, a hand clasps mine. Looking up from my bed, unable to move my head much, 
my muscles as pliant as a newborn calf's. I'm struck by the way the black cloak he wears seems to absorb all of the light in the room. He's taller than I thought, which brings me to near hysterical laughter, the absurdity of the moment too much to bear. Hello, I whisper, shifting my gaze to where his eyes might be, concealed within the abyss of his cloak's hood. For an eternity he is silent, his hand cold in mine, the chill oscillating between our fingers, dancing, becoming acquainted. Have you made a decision? Will you marry? His voice is a breeze through a cornfield, the crackling of burning wood. His right hand motions to the cloak I was given, pooled at the end of my bed. I try once more to weigh the options but my mind is consumed by the enormity of the event. I feel as though I may fall off the earth, plunging into the cold vacuum of the universe. The thread which tethers me here is fraying. I feel light. I feel the strands connecting me to everything else, the force between all living beings. I am breathing in the stars, and they are breathing me back. I was right. There's nothing to fear. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. My answer is a single nod. And with that, we are floating. The cloak around me its edges blending with his. We are unending. I am ready. You made the right choice, he says. Voice now strong and clear as he pulls back his hood. And we begin. Thanks for listening. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. I'll put a link to my Teespring store in the show notes. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scary to sleep. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash scary to sleep. You can follow my personal Instagram at Shelby B. Scott. Thank you again to this week's authors. I hope to hear from both of you again with different material. If you have a story you would like me to read on the show, you can send it to me at scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I'm still on the lookout for some holiday or winter-themed stories, so send them my way. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>